The scripture reading today is 1 John 4, 7 through 21, and it's found on page 1023 in the Pew Bible. Beloved, let us love one another, for for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God, who does not love, does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment Because as he is also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How can you see the invisible? It's a question that Jesus himself answered when he healed the paralyzed man in Mark 2. If you're familiar with the story, you'll know that first he tells the man, son, your sins are forgiven. The folk around him start freaking out. Who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sin. Then Jesus says, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus makes the invisible visible. He shows that he has the spiritual authority through physical means. You and I are limited. Most people have five senses. We can see, we can hear, we can touch, we can taste, we can smell. That's how we perceive the world. And for us to know things, that is how we know things. That's how we experience life, through our five senses. In 1 John, that's very much how John approaches the question of Christ. Was Christ a real man or a disembodied spirit, like the heretics said? 
What was the risen Christ? Was he flesh and blood or just a ghost? John's answer is crystal clear in the first couple uh, of verses of the letter. That which, we have, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it. The life, God the Son, that which was from the beginning, the word with which, uh, which was with God and was God, the invisible has been made manifest, made visible. And we have seen, we have heard, and we have touched him. God entered our world in a way that we could know him. Not just in a vague feeling or a warm-hearted experience, but in a real way. That's the general point of John's letter. It's an expansion of his great verse from the opening of his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to know that we can know the invisible God. We don't need any hidden knowledge like the Gnostics or any higher level stuff like the esoteric cults. But we, ordinary men and women and boys and girls, can know the invisible God. Our reading this morning from chapter 4, 7 to 21 keeps very much on that theme. The invisible made visible. The invisible thing that John is talking about in this section is love. And not just any kind of love, but covenant love. You may know that there's four words for love in Greek, referring to affection or friendship, sexual love, and covenant love. Every time that we read love in this passage, John is talking about covenant love. He's talking about the unconditional love that characterizes Christian relationships. Our relationship with God, his relationship with us, and hopefully our relationship with one another. When you see the word love in this section, in fact in the whole letter, you can read it in your mind as covenant love. We could read verse 7 like, Covenant beloved, let us covenant love one another, for covenant love is from God, and whoever covenant loves has been born of God, and covenant knows God. The point that John is making is that this invisible, this intangible thing, this covenant love, has been made manifest or visible. And how is that love made manifest? How is that love made visible? Well, John's answer is that it's made visible in the church, in Christ's body. If we work back from the, verse, from the end of verse 7, we find that whoever covenantally loves has been born of God and knows God. That is, that they have been born of God, they know God as their Father, and that these folk have not been born again, or, uh, and that there are folk who have not been born again or born from above, who are not part of the invisible church. We know that those with saving faith in Christ covenantly love because they have been born of God and love 
is from God. So John's line of reasoning in verse 7 is that these folk, these beloved, have been born of God. The commandment at the beginning of that verse, let us love one another, is not an impossible command or something that anyone can teach or force unbelievers to do. Instead, it's a reminder to make the invisible visible, to take the invisible truth that we are God's children visible by loving one another. Not necessarily like or share the same hobbies or taste in music or books or politics or whatever, but to love one another. Anyone, John says in verse 8, who doesn't love doesn't know God. Why is that? Because God is love. And how was this love made visible to us? How do we get a glimpse into what covenant love looks like in practice? Verse 9 we read, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world. That's the same manifestation that John saw, heard, and touched in chapter 1. The Word became flesh, the Son became flesh. The love of God was made manifest among us. Christ puts flesh on the covenant love of God so that we can see the invisible. And so that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. Not die outside of him. So what does it look like to live a covenant, a life of covenant love? Well, in verse 10, John tells us exactly. But note one thing. It doesn't start with us. John says in verse 10, This is love. Not that we have loved God but that he loved us. God is the first mover. We see this in verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. Even when we were dead in our sins and completely unlovable, God set his covenant love on us. And this is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us. And how does God make that uh, invisible love visible? The end of verse 10, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a great Bible word that tells us that Christ, our great high priest, offered himself as a sacrifice to take away the guilt of our sin and to take away God's wrath at our sin. The love of God that John is talking about is costly love. It counts others as more important than ourselves. And it's a love that's sacrificial in action and humble in nature. God doesn't love you or me because Christ died for us. Christ wasn't twisting the Father's hand, somehow trying to get him to love us. Christ died for us because the Father loves us. That's why he sent his Son. To show his love for the unlovable and his hatred for our sin. Why did Christ come in the flesh? Well, flesh and blood can be nailed to a cross. Spirit can't. Christ, the God-man, came to be the sacrifice for our sin. And it means that not only did Christ take away the guilt of our sin, but he also took away 
God's wrath of, um, of our sin. Friends, we are guiltless and we are at peace with God because of the covenant love of God. And that is the best news that we could ever hear. All of our sins are washed away. Not hypothetically. We're not on probation with God waiting for us to slip up. We are loved with that sacrificial love. Perfect sacrificial love. Perfect sacrificial love manifested perfectly in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's humbling because we are the objects of that love. We are the beloved. Take these words personally when you read this letter. So John starts off again in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, that is, if we are born of God, if we're guiltless, if we're at peace with God because of his grace to us, if all that's true, then we also ought to love one another. How do we make the invisible visible? By loving one another as Christ loves us, humbly, sacrificially, and graciously. This is John's way of saying, if you've been justified, you're being sanctified. If you're at peace with God, that should bear fruit in our lives, especially as we live in relationship with one another. If you're being sanctified, you, if you're not being sanctified, we should question if we have been justified. Think about John's logic in verse 12. No one has ever seen God, so God's invisible. If God is invisible, how do we know that we have received the love of God, that we are the beloved, and that we are not the fakes that he speaks about in chapter 219, about those who went out from among us because they were never truly part of us? Well, John says in verse 12, If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. He's not saying that if we love one another, that makes God abide in us. He's saying that if we love one another, that means that God already abides in us. And how do we know if God abides in us? If we love one another. If we don't love one another, then it doesn't look like God does abide in us. And if he doesn't abide in us, then it's impossible that his love is being perfected or literally brought to its goal, brought to completion in us. In other words, if God doesn't abide in us, then we don't have the gift of love to share with others. Love's goal is that we love God and love one another. John is not preaching a try-harder, do-more, be-better message. He's not guilt-tripping the beloved. He's trying to get us to see that everything in the Christian life is grace. Everything comes from God and God's love. Even our love for one another is from God and from his love. There's a belief sometimes in Protestantism that once you get saved, everything else is down to you. Jesus did his, did his part, and now we have to do our part. But that's really not how the Bible talks about salvation. The Bible talks about being saved as broader than just being justified. It also talks about being sanctified or being saved from lives of sin. 
And that's not a case of us just trying to be better people or trying to do good. It's a case of resting in Christ and trusting that God, who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion at the, at the day of Christ Jesus. It's God's work in us, not our work for God. It's the invisible truth of being told that your sins are forgiven, made visible by walking in the light of Christ's love. And think about for a moment how great news that is. If you have your Bible open, please read aloud with me verse 13. If you're ready, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. John does not say, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because we're doing our best and nothing ever goes wrong. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Beloved, we're not alone. God is with us. God is dwelling in his church, really dwelling in his church, the temple of God, the body of Christ on earth. Not because of anything that we have done or will do, but because he has given us of his spirit. The same spirit that opened our eyes to our great need of Christ, the same spirit that speaks to us in scripture, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and the same spirit that is interceding for us right now. The same spirit that is working in us to conform us to the image of Christ. The same spirit that is bearing fruit in believers at all times and in all places. There is nowhere that the church is where the spirit is not. In verse 14, John reminds us of the objectivity, of the reality of our faith, of our saving faith. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. They have seen that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the whole world. How have they seen this? Well, pretty much how we see it. Anyone who is not an ethnic Jew who is a believer is that verse made visible. Look around you. We are this in flesh and blood. It's like when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John 3 and says, For God so loved the world. And that blows Nicodemus' mind. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, is told by God himself that God loves the world, not just people from Israel. That was revolutionary to Nicodemus. But it's something that we, Eden Grove, testify to. We testify to it every time that we confess Jesus as Lord. We testify to it every time that we meet as a body. We testify to it every time that we come together to worship God. The church, even the small church in Balanahinch, is a testimony to that truth made visible. We read in verse 15 that whoever, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Some folks take this to mean that uh, doctrine doesn't matter or to say, well, the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses confess that. But that's not what John is saying. 
Doctrine Matters, John wrote an entire gospel based on Christ being God. That's what John is talking about confessing here. He's not going to uh, contradict himself in his letter. The emphasis here is on the whoever part. Whoever. Greek. Barbarian. British. Unionist. Irish. Nationalist. Indian. Korean. Hispanic. Chinese. American. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, has God abiding in him, or her, and them in God. There was a video on, uh, on YouTube this week of Chinese Christians who got a delivery of Bibles. The reaction to the Bible is absolutely astounding. You think they've just given a million dollars to them each? Nobody watching that video would doubt that Scripture is important to them. But why? Because who wrote the Bible is important to them. They love the book because they love the author. Imagine growing up not really knowing anything about God, living in a communist country, seeing churches torn down and Christians imprisoned. Verses 14 and 15 must be incredibly moving. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Imagine reading that for the first time and thinking, even me. Yes, even me. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Does that move us? Does it move us to look around and think how privileged we are that we know this? Because God loves the world. God loves us. Because God loves the world, we read in verse 19, So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. It's not a general abstract love. It's God's covenant love for real people in real places in the world. Look at the two verbs John uses in verse 16. Know and believe. It's something that we know. We know the fact of God's love because we see his love for others. And it's something that we believe. We believe that God loves us because we see his love for others. And to know God's love is to know God. Because John says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives, uh, uh, lives in God, and God lives in him. Because God is love. It's our covenant relationship with God that covenant love is perfected, or literally brought to its goal in us, the church. Love being perfected means love's goal. And love's goal is that we love God and love one another. If we say we're Christians, we're supposed to be a testimony to that truth. And if that's us, then John gives us great news in the second part of verse 17. He says that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, also are we in this world. Easier said than done, I know. But don't doubt Christ's love for us, individually and as Eden Grove. 
he will not cast us away at the final judgment. Have confidence because as he is, still flesh and blood, nail-scarred hands, and still rejected and cursed out by people, so also are believers in this world. We're still flesh and blood, and we are still rejected and forsaken and cursed out by the world. But that doesn't mean that God does not love us. What it does mean is that we love God and the world hates us. We know that from Jesus' words in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. John himself has already said this pretty much the same thing in chapter 3 of the letter. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. But folks, have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, also are we in this world. Don't be afraid of meeting God when your time on this earth is done. Have confidence. There's no fear in covenant love, but perfect love. That love that is working towards its goal casts out fear. Believer, you will not be punished in hell or face any so-called purification fires and purgatory. Christ has paid it all. Christ has accomplished your salvation on the cross. It is finished. That means that we don't fear God as judge, but we love him as father because we have been born of God. For fear, fear has to do with punishment. If you're still fearing punishment for your sins, you haven't got it yet. You might know the good news, but you don't necessarily believe it. You might know it, have heard it, but it hasn't sunk in. Whoever fears that they will be punished in hell for their sins on the day of judgment really does not have the gospel. Because scripture says that Christ is the propitiation for your sin. That means no guilt, no wrath. What could you possibly fear if God is for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? We could ask cancer, dementia, car accidents, heart failure, depression. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul continues, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because this covenant love is not because of anything in us. It's not because we're holy. It's not because we're successful. It's not because we're rich or good-looking. It's because, in verse 19, we know that we believe that we love because he first loved us. Your certainty, your confidence on the day of judgment is not based on anything, anything at all, other than the certainty that he loved us first. Even while we were his enemies, he loved us first. While you were his enemy, he sent his son to die for you. How could you possibly think 
that he's going to reject you now, that he's made you his friend. The invisible made visible. God's love manifested in so many ways among us. Each of us bearing witness to the love of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Especially towards people who don't deserve it. People like me. People like you. Sinners without any other hope in the world. But John closes this passage with a brief illustration. He says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. Words alone don't wash with John. If the invisible is not made visible in the church, John calls us liars. It's in loving each other that we bear witness to the invisible reality of the love of God for his people. But if his people don't love one another, then there's something drastically wrong in the church. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you for your love. And we thank you for the truth of your word that says you first loved us. While we were sinners, you sent Christ to die for us because you love us. Lord, we thank you that our salvation is not based on anything we do. We thank you it's not something that we can lose. We thank you that it's not something that we can throw away. But we thank you for your work in us. And we thank you, Lord, that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. It is in his name we pray. Amen.